podcast. My name is Rebecca Meidinger, and I am so glad that you are able to join us today. Today we are in session six of our Romans 8 Bible study called Spirit Life. This is the last and final session on Romans chapter 8 that we'll be looking at. Today our verses are Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. As we begin today, we just came off of this wonderful promise from the Apostle Paul that those who God foreknew, he also predestined, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Past tense, like your glorification is complete in Christ. And when Paul reaches the next sentence of this letter that he writes, he says, what then shall we say about all these things? And I have to think that when Paul exclaimed this out loud as he was speaking his letter out loud. And we learn in chapter 16 of Romans that a guy by the name of Tertius was writing it down. So as Paul was speaking out loud, I have to think when he got to this part, he raised his hands and he put them out and he was like, what then shall we say about all these things? You are already glorified in Christ. It is past tense. God has saved you. It is finished. The work of the cross is finished. The tomb is empty. What then shall we say about all these things? And then his next sentence is, If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, remember, this is the Apostle Paul saying this. And the Apostle Paul had many people against him. We learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which we looked at last week, we learned that the Apostle Paul went underwent great persecution. He was flogged five times, 39 lashes, uh, because 40 lashes was like a death sentence. It was considered to be a death sentence. So 35 times he received 39 lashes. He was in prison uh, many, many times. He was hungry and thirsty and stoned and he went under great persecution. He had many people against him and yet he knew that his foes were nothing compared to the God who was for him. He knew that God was for him. Even though so many people in the world seemed to be against the Apostle Paul, he knew that God was on his side. If you remember way back in the Old Testament, we see Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. And they get to what we often call the Red Sea. It would have been actually the Sea of Reeds is a better translation. And they are at the shore of the water and Pharaoh's army, the greatest, mightiest, strongest army in the world at that time, is marching behind this ragtag mob of slaves. And when the Israelites get to the shore of the water, of course they're stressed out because Egypt is marching behind them. And they were like, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? And it says there that there's an angel of the Lord leading the people. And it says actually specifically, the angel of the Lord is leading the group of Israelites. And every time in the Old Testament when we see the angel of the Lord, that is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ who comes down and ministers to his people. We don't know what form he took. It appears that he 
he took the form of a man and maybe appeared in different ways at different times. We're not sure. But it's the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, went from standing in front and leading the group of Israelites. And it says in Exodus 14, verse 19, that he went to the back of the mob of the Israelites to stand in between the Israelites and Pharaoh's army. The angel of the Lord went and stood behind the people so that the enemy could not get to the people of Israel. Friend, the finished work of the cross of Christ stands between you and every single adversary that tries to come against you. Every single adversary that tries to come against you, the cross of Christ stands in between you. The work on the cross is finished and God is for you. I think that oftentimes we don't doubt the power of God. We know that God is powerful, but we doubt that he is really for us. We might think if God was really for us, he would heal cancer. If God was really for us, he would stop the suffering. If God was really for us, wouldn't he stop the war in the Ukraine? If God was really for us, he would make sure that people weren't dying of starvation. Children are dying of starvation. If God was really for us, he would protect children from human trafficking. He would have protected the person that I love so so much who was taken from me in death. If God was really for me, he would have arranged things so that I didn't lose my job. If he was for me, he would allow my kid to make better choices. If he was for me, he would save my marriage. We don't doubt the power of God to do these things. We doubt that he is for us. So how can we know for sure that God is for us? I want you to know today that God is for you. He is for you. So I would love it if you're just in the car right now or somewhere where you can talk out loud to yourself. I would love it if you would say these words with me. God is for me. God is for me. What helps me sometimes when I'm doing Bible study is I like to say a phrase, a a phrase out of scripture and emphasize one word at a time. So in this context, We're saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? The truth there inside of that is God is for me. So I want to take those four words, God is for me, and emphasize one at a time. And if you're in a place where you could do this out loud, it's really helpful. So God is for me. Yes, other people are for me as well. My husband is for me. My kids are for me. My siblings are for me. My family is for me. My Uh, My friends and church are for me. But more important than all of that is that God is for me. So even if people are standing against me, God is for me. The next word is is. This is an important one for us to emphasize because it's easy for us to think that God might be for me. God sometimes is for me. If I do the right things, God could be for me then. No, God is for me. So let's say that phrase, God is for me. The next one is the word for. God is for me. He's not against me. He is not occasionally like sort of on my side. No, he is for me. He's not against me. He is for me. 
And then the last one, of course, me. Because it's easy for us to tell other people, God is for you. God is for you. And it's harder for us to tell ourselves, God is for me. God is on my side. God is cheering me on. God has my back. God is for me. So say it out loud. God is for me. God is for me. He is for me. He is for me. He is for me. And if we're not sure how we know, like how do I really know? The next verse tells us exactly how we know. He who did not spare his own son. He did not spare his own son. God the Father so desired to spend eternity with you, so desired to give you his peace and his joy right now during this time on this earth. He so desired to take off the weight of sin from your shoulders so that you could live free. He so desired to show you his love that he did not spare his own son. If you are wondering today, how do I really know that God is for me? You don't have to look any further than the cross of Christ. It is so cool that the day I'm recording this is the day before Good Friday. Good Friday, when we remember Jesus hanging on that cross. That is the absolute answer that God is for us. He is for you all the way unto death. The cross of Christ and the empty tomb are God's answer to all of the brokenness in this world. If the brokenness is making you ask, is God really for me? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. That is our answer. God is for you. So Romans 8.32 goes on and says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what Paul is saying here is that since God did not even spare his own son, whom he loved, won't he then also give us all things? And the answer is yes, he will give us all things. But this can be confusing because sometimes we think that the all things that God is going to give to us are on earth. And then when we, when we don't receive the all things on earth or when earth continues to cause trouble for us, we think, wait a minute, God is withholding this. He's supposed to show me that he loves me and he's withholding from me. But the all things that God wants to give us in Christ are not things of this earth. Although he does absolutely shower upon us also blessings in this world, food and clothing and homes and jobs and loved ones and laughter and gifts and sunshine. I mean, there are wonderful gifts that God gives us, tangible gifts. But the all things that he is referring to here are the things of the Spirit. In Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 20, Paul prays for the people in Ephesus, and he says, I pray that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Christ better, and that you might know the riches to which he has called you, the glorious inheritance in his holy people. So they are riches beyond what anything this world could offer. Those are the things that want God wants to give us. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. In Ephesians 2, just a little, a little bit later, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, 
Paul is writing that God gave us a seat in the heavenly realms next to Christ. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms and that he wants to show us the incomparable riches of his grace. He wants to show us the incomparable riches of his grace. In Colossians, Paul is praying for the people and he says that I pray that they might have the full riches of complete understanding that they would know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God wants to give us the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jeremiah 33.3, God said to Jeremiah, Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things that you do not know. In some translations, it says great and unsearchable things or unfathomable things that you do not know. God has riches of wisdom and revelation that he wants to give us. In 2 Peter, uh, it says that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. He's given us everything we need through the Holy Spirit. These are the all things that God wants to give us. I'd like to share with you about this verse, Romans 8.32. I'd like to share with you a little bit of what John Piper writes about this. John Piper writes about uh, Romans 8.32 as his favorite verse. And he says beautiful words about it. I'd like to share with you. Um, This is from John Piper's book, Why I Love the Apostle Paul, 30 Reasons. He says this, The point of Romans 8.32 is that this love of God for his one and only Son was like a massive Mount Everest obstacle standing between God and our salvation. Here was an obstacle almost insurmountable. Could God, would God overcome his cherishing, admiring, treasuring, white, hot, infinite, affectionate bond with his son and hand him over to be lied about and betrayed and denied and abandoned and mocked and flogged and beaten and spit on and nailed to a cross and pierced with a sword like an animal being butchered and hung up on a rack? Would he really do that? If he would, then we could know with full certainty that whatever goal he was pursuing on the other side of that obstacle could never fail. There could be no greater obstacle. The unthinkable reality that Romans 8.32 affirms is that God did it. He did hand Jesus over. God did not spare him. You might say, didn't Judas hand him over? Or didn't Pilate hand him over? Didn't Herod and the mobs of people hand him over? Worst of all, didn't we hand him over? And perhaps most surprisingly, didn't Jesus hand himself over? The answer to all these questions is yes. But in Romans 8.32, Paul is penetrating through all these agents, all these instruments of death. He is saying the most unthinkable thing in and behind and beneath and through All these human agents, God was handing over his son to death. Nothing greater or harder has ever happened or ever will. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In Romans 8.33, Paul goes on to say, 
Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I just love this because Paul had charges brought against him frequently. Again, going back to 2 Corinthians 11, we learn there that Paul was in prison many times, more times than we have accounted for in in their scriptures. He was in prison. So how did he get in prison? Well, because people brought charges against him. Paul knew what it was to have charges brought against him. But even so, he's saying they didn't matter. They don't matter. Sure, people are going to bring charges against us in this world. Bring lies against us. People will bring up past things and accusation. People might even plead before God against us. That is possible. But it it won't work. Nothing, nothing that anybody says, no lies of the enemy, no charges aimed against you, can change a thing about how God feels toward you. He loves you. He set his affections upon you before the creation of the earth. He has made you right with him through the cross of Christ. Yes, there will be charges that are brought against us, but none of them mean anything to the Father who loves us because he already made us right with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have been justified through faith in Christ, and nothing can change that. Our justification, our right standing with God doesn't depend on anything that we do and it doesn't depend on anything anybody anybody else says. It only depends on Jesus and what he did on the cross. And that is a done deal. He said it is finished. And the peace that we have with God now is not peace that is flimsy or flippant. It's not a fleeing feeling. Jesus said, the peace that I give you is different than the peace that the world gives you. The peace of God is a sure, certain, palpable, almost tangible reality. It is fixed and certain in our lives. When we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And nothing can change that. So who can bring any charge against you? It is God who justified you. Nobody else can say anything about it. I love the second part of Romans 5, what I read to you from verses 1 and 2. In verse 2, it says, Through whom, through Jesus, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And to me, it makes me think of waterfalls. I love waterfalls maybe more than any other part of God's creation. I crave waterfalls. I love them. And... I really love when you can get to a waterfall where it's safe for you to go stand underneath it if you're able to traverse the rocks to go stand underneath the waterfall and if it's calm enough that you know that it won't rush you down the river if you do that but sometimes you can find a waterfall where you can go stand underneath it and the water just rushes over your head like pummels on top of your head and the thing is it never stops it never 
stops. You could stand there all day, all week, all month, all year, and the water won't stop pummeling. It just keeps coming. That's what I think of when this says we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The grace is just running over us and it won't run out. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. Not even our sin can make it stop coming. In fact, Romans 5.20 says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So sin won't even diminish the grace of God that runs all over us. If sin increases, grace will increase all the more. It just keeps coming. Paul goes on in uh, Romans 8.34 to say, Who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. All right, there are many things in that verse to discuss. First of all, Paul said, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who can condemn you? This is very similar to the last question about who can bring any charges against you. One of my favorite personal accounts with Jesus in the entire Bible is in John chapter 8, when the woman caught in adultery is dragged into the temple and placed before Jesus early in the morning. The poor dear woman must have been trembling to the core, thrown down in the temple. She was basically put on trial right there as as religious leaders asked Jesus if they should condemn her to death. Hey, Jesus, do you want us to stone her? I mean, if she was literally caught in the act and dragged outside of bed, what happened to the man? Did they give her time to get dressed before they dragged her outside? Or at least to wrap a sheet around herself? Had the Pharisees grabbed stones on their way to the temple, or were they planning to gather them as they dragged her outside the city limits? Did she have people at home that she loved and wanted to say goodbye to? Certainly she thought death was imminent. Judgment, condemnation, accusation were being thrown at her from every direction. We don't know anything about her, but I do get the sense that her story is one of continual shame and sorrow, of constantly being blamed, of fingers being pointed at her direction, scoffing eyes cutting into her heart every day until she meets Jesus. Because when all the people were like, Jesus, do you want us to condemn her? He wouldn't let them. He wouldn't let them. He didn't condemn her, and he wouldn't let the other people either. He would not let them throw one stone at them, at her. His presence is a fortress around her. So let's put ourselves in her position. What charges and accusations are you facing today? What is coming against you today? Whether it's from your own sin, whether it's accusations from other people, whether it's straight from Satan. What accusations are coming at you today? What stones of condemnation do you feel like are being thrown at you today? Bring them before Jesus and remember, claim on to the fact of Romans 8.1 that said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are feeling like there's condemnation coming at you, accusation from the enemy coming at you, you tell it to stop in the mighty name of Jesus. Remind the enemy that there is in fact 
no condemnation that can be thrown at you because Jesus has taken it all away on the cross. Jesus has taken your condemnation. He has canceled it on the cross of Christ. He has paid for it. He has separated your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. And you now stand in grace. There is no condemnation. There wasn't for this dear woman in John chapter 8. And there is not for us either. There is no condemnation for us. So Paul writes, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then Paul says, my favorite thing in the entire chapter of Romans chapter 8. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. More than that, who was raised. Why is being raised more than dying? Look, Jesus' death on the cross is the most loving, sacrificial act in human history. It is the reason I can live and breathe. It has saved me from the depths of hell. But the reason that the Apostle Paul says more than that, who was raised, is because, like he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ was still dead, if he had not been raised from the grave, then our faith would be in vain. Because when Jesus died for our sin, he then overcame our sin. He conquered sin, death, and the devil so that death does not have the final say. Death will never have the final say because Jesus trampled over it, conquered over sin, death, and the devil in his resurrection. So more than that, who was raised. And then where is he now? Oh, he is at the right hand of God. That is the seat of highest, ultimate, total, final authority. And that is where the Lord Jesus sits now. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, the seat of total authority over all of the universe. And what is he doing there? He is not just twiddling his thumbs or surfing social media, waiting for God the Father to say that it's time for him to return. No, while he sits in the seat of total authority, Romans 8.34 tells us that he is indeed interceding for us. He is praying for us. He is beseeching to the Father, reminding the Father that he loves us, that he chose us, that he set us affection on us before the creation of the world, that he saved us through the cross of Christ, that he removed our sin, that he separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. Christ is constantly applying the atonement of the cross to us and praying, beseeching, pleading with the Father on our behalf. Now think about what is so amazing here. Think about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have God the Father, who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. That is the love of the Father, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. God is a God of love, who chose us, loved us, gave his Son to die for us. And then we have Jesus the Son who died on the cross for us and now spends his days interceding, praying for us to the Father. And then we have the Spirit, which we learned about 
A couple of weeks ago, it's constantly praying for us. The Spirit is praying and interceding. The Spirit is searching out the mind of the Father. The Father is searching out the mind and the heart of the Spirit. And the Spirit is praying perfectly in alignment with the will of God on our behalf. This is our God. This is our Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. They are for us. God is for us. The Father is for us. Jesus the Son is for us. The Spirit is for us. God is for us. I want to read to you again from another author. This time his name is Dane Ortland, And he wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. And he has wonderful, helpful, insightful words about what it means that Jesus is interceding on our behalf that I'd like to share with you. Think of it this way. Christ's heart is a steady reality flowing through time. It isn't as if his heart throbbed for his people when he was on earth, but has dissipated now that he is in heaven. It's not that his heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but has now cooled down settling back once more into kindly indifference. His heart is as drawn to his people now as it ever was in his incarnate state. And the present manifestation of his heart for his people is his constant interceding on their behalf. Christ's intercession reflects how profoundly personal our rescue is. If we knew about Christ's death and resurrection, but not about his intercession, We would be tempted to view our salvation in overly formulaic terms. It would feel more mechanical than it is. His interceding for us reflects the heart of Christ, the same heart that carried him through life and down into death on behalf of his people is the heart that now manifests itself in constant pleading with and reminding and prevailing upon his Father to always welcome us. This does not mean that the Father is reluctant to embrace us or that the Son has a more loving disposition toward us than the Father. The atoning work of the Son was something the Father and the Son delightedly agreed together in eternity past. The Son's intercession does not reflect the coolness of the Father, but the sheer warmth of the Son. Christ does not intercede because the Father's heart is tepid toward us, but because the Son's heart is so full toward us. But the Father's own deepest delight is to say yes to the Son's pleading on our behalf. The Son pleads with the Father because his heart is so full of love for us. And the Father delights to say yes to the Son's pleading because the Father also has a heart that is so full, bursting forth with love for us. So who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Praise be to God. All right, Romans 8 verse 35, Paul then says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to list a number of things that might feel like they are threatening the love of Christ. 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? These were realities in Paul's life. He went through all of these things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword. He ended up dying by the sword, actually, at the hand of Nero. And yet he said that none of these things can separate him from the love of Christ. And even by the time he wrote the letter to the Romans in about A.D., 57 or 58, he had experienced all of these at some degree, and he knew they will not separate me from the love of Christ. In fact, about five years after he wrote this letter, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul prayed that the people of Ephesus would know the depths and the heights and the length and the breadth of the love of God. Which tells me that as Paul suffered more and more, his suffering did not drive him away from the love of Christ. It drove him into the love of Christ more and more until he found himself swimming in this ocean of the love of God and praying for other people as he swam in the ocean of the love of God, praying for other people that they would know the depth, the height, the breadth, the width, of this ocean of the love of Christ because he discovered it so much more and more and more, not in spite of his suffering, but because of his suffering. None of it could separate him from the love of Christ. And he goes on in verse 36 to say, For as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the reality for thousands of Christians around the world right now, today. Christian persecution has never been higher than it is today. It's never been more prevalent than it is today. You and I, I mean, I'm sitting here in my basement in Fargo, North Dakota, and I'm not afraid of being persecuted for my faith in Christ right now, but a day may come when that is demanded of me. It is being demanded of people all over the globe right now. That is their reality. And we have the promise of scripture that in that persecution, they are not being separated from the love of Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is stoned, he's the first person we have recorded in scripture who is killed for their faith in Christ. When he is stoned in Acts chapter 7, he is not separated from the love of Christ. It's the complete opposite. He sees the heavens open and he sees Jesus the Son standing in full authority next to God the Father. He sees Jesus. He sees glory. And then he enters into that glory. He is not separated from the love of Christ. He sees the love of Christ expressed in the most tangible way he ever could on earth as he has taken from this earth. So what is it for you? There are probably things in our lives that feel like they can also separate us from the love of Christ. Go ahead and jot those down. If you're doing this along with the Spirit Life Bible study, there's a place for you to write those things down. Paul made his list. What's your list? What feels like it could separate you from the love of Christ? And then after you make your list, go ahead and take a big red pen and write, no, no, 
no over all those things that seem like they're going to threaten you from Jesus's love because nothing can, nothing can. He goes on into Romans 8, 37 and he says, no, in all these things, all the things you listed, all the things the Apostle Paul listed that seem like they might separate you from his love, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The phrase there, more than conquerors, that is the Greek word hypernikomen. And what it really means is that you keep on. So it's a, it's a present tense verb that keeps on going. We keep on being conquerors to a greater degree. So as threats come to us, we keep on conquering them more and more. Another way you could translate that is we keep on winning a glorious victory. We keep on winning a glorious victory. We are more than conquerors. And then Paul gets to his finale of Romans chapter 8. And he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, whether I am taken from this earth or whether I stay here on this earth where there is suffering and groaning and sin, none of that, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nothing in the spiritual realm, no created being in the spiritual realm. And then he says, nor things present, nor things to come. No matter what is going on in the realm of time, nothing that's happening right now or nothing that will ever happen, none of that can separate me from the love of Christ. And then he says no powers, no spiritual powers, no natural powers on this created earth, no powers, supernatural or natural, could separate me from the love of Christ. And then he says, nor height nor depth. So in the space and time continuum, nothing, nothing in the universe, nothing in the depths of the earth, nothing in all of space or time or the created world or the supernatural world can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want you to say it out loud. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. As we wrap up this study on Romans chapter 8, I would love to declare over you all of the promises of Romans 8. So if you're in a place where you could just close your eyes and listen, I listen to my podcast in the car all the time. So, you know, if you're driving a car, don't close your eyes. But if you're somewhere where you can close your eyes, go ahead and do that. Or if you're just in a place where you can just be quiet and let these words wash over you, I'd just like to share with you all of the promises in Romans chapter 8. Before I start doing that, I want to thank you for joining me on this spirit life journey. It has been such a blessing to be with you, to teach through Romans chapter 8 and learn and study and grow alongside of you. I hope that you'll continue joining the Seeking Pearls podcast as we dive into scripture together. So thank you so much. Here is Romans chapter 8. Just let it wash over you like that waterfall we talked about earlier. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son 
in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father! The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it is written, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen.